This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. We can always find that silver lining. It brings us together. Even in social isolation, we can still, and social distancing, we can still actually become warmer and more humane to each other and, and build relationships, even in this time. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Coronavirus, or COVID-19 as the disease is officially known, is the only topic on our minds at the moment. Everyone's minds, the global health crisis has now led to a national emergency being declared in the United States and populations around the world are grappling with the immediate implications of a pandemic that may still be in its early stages. So while living long and well may be our goal, especially on this podcast, without being melodramatic about it, just living through this crisis, however many months it may last, is more of a concern right now. So what should we be doing? I'm joined by Dr. Felice Gersh, a physician from Irvine in California, an integrative medicine specialist and a regular contributor to this podcast. Dr. Gersh, hello and welcome again to the Lama podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to join you. And once again, as you said, it's really a huge issue that's happening right now across the world and in everyone's individual neighborhood. But I'm very happy to join you to talk about this really important topic. Well, I'm grateful. And uh, of course, on past occasions when we've uh, recorded episodes of the podcast, we've met up in person, but not today for a very good reason. Well, today we're doing social um, isolation, social distancing. We really have to take this very seriously. We have to separate ourselves from the people we love, the people we work with, as much as we can so that we don't spread this virus around too quickly beyond the capacity of our healthcare system to handle it. What are you telling your patients about? Uh, I mean, clearly it means stay as far away from individuals as you practically can, but is there a, a guideline there? Well, there apparently isn't because the definition seems to vary with who you speak with. Like some cities have shut down everything as far as theaters, but the schools are still in session. And they've made exceptions to this and that and the other. So there doesn't seem to be a universal definition. And I know you're kindly talking to us between seeing patients in your practice today. So I'm just curious, as a doctor, how are you coping and how has it impacted you? Well, we're offering every single patient who possibly can to switch their appointment to a telemedicine appointment. And about half the patients today actually chose a telemedicine. We're very careful in terms of cleaning down all the surfaces. We're disinfecting every room after every single patient. We're washing our hands constantly and we're keeping our distance. We've created very... um, well, friendly ways to say goodbye and hello without getting too close to anyone. So we're adapting as best we can. We're actually 
checking the temperatures of all of the patients right as they come in to ensure that they don't have a fever so I can protect my staff as well as the other patients. And we're talking on the Friday afternoon that President Trump announced a national emergency. Two very big words, as as he put it. Do you get a sense, again, from what your patients are saying to you, that um, we are living through an emergency? This is an unprecedented event, and certainly... Every, well, I would say everyone's life because nobody lived through the Spanish flu. That was back in 1918. So there's no one on this planet now. I think maybe one person who's in their hundreds, but can have any idea of what it's like to live through a pandemic of this nature. So we're really finding our own path. And it's really almost every community is creating their own protocols. As I went last night through the internet, looking at countries around the world, I'm seeing a whole variety of steps that are being taken and very rapidly across the world to try to create this social distancing, to try to separate people from one another to slow this infection. Well, we're going to talk about some of the best practices that will help us collectively to get through this. Are your patients, you talked about how many of them are talking to you via the internet now, but those that you've met in person, are they asking to be tested? I've had quite, yes, I actually have had quite a few emails and calls and they would be labeled by the hospital systems as the worried well, because they're obviously not in the very severe affected sick kind of population at this time. But I really hate to categorize that. I said the worried well, because it's actually the very words that were used by some of the local hospitals talking about this group, because I like to think of them as the proactive, thoughtful group, that they are trying to be active in terms of preventing infection among their family members, their co-workers. And almost everyone has been reading about community spread. And yet the hospital systems are still working off of the old advice that was given back a couple, old advice going back two weeks, you know, it's like history is like every day is a new day in terms of the way history is progressing here. So that the idea that you have to have contacted someone who actually was traveling and they, you know, they added Italy and then they add Germany, but a few countries that have had some of the worst outbreaks without really taking into consideration that in our own country, In the state of Washington, there was one person who came in that had been visiting Wuhan, and they identified that person as carrying and being infected with the coronavirus and immediately isolated that person in a like the probably the most effective type of isolation chamber that was created for Ebola. And then they traced all the contacts, they tested everyone, and then lo and behold, not too much later, a teenager about 12 miles away came down with an infection with this, what turned out to be close to an identical strain, and they feel that it's the same virus. And so it, it's clearly community spread. We don't, he, there's no way that anyone can figure out how that teenager got, was in contact with anyone from those countries. It is very clear how fast this can spread, but I keep on hearing, despite that, it described as a, a mild illness, potentially, for the majority of us who might be infected. What does mild illness mean? Well, that is, I would say, a misnomer of the use of the word mild, because when you actually look into it, they're considering anyone who doesn't get hospitalized to be on the mild side. So you could actually have pneumonia, and they call it mild. So 
and this is happening also in younger people that they're not dying very very often and they're not being hospitalized and intubated in anywhere near the numbers as say people in their 80s but they're still getting quite sick and it's taking weeks for them to recover so i don't know that i would call that mild i would just say it's not severe but it doesn't quite go into the zone of mild in my opinion so let's talk about some of those um, things that we can do and we've been bombarded haven't we over the last few days and and weeks really with uh, the obvious is constantly cleaning our hands but there's there's a way to do that isn't there well yes actually i've had people say oh do you know how to clean your hands and i said well you know i'm a surgeon i i've been trained and it really does take quite an an art and there's a knack to it because people often just run their hands under water and then they just run away and that's the end of it they just get a towel but you really want to at this time especially if you've really been in contact with anyone that you've been concerned about, but really just in general to recognize that now we're not just doing a quick once over. We really want to wash between our fingers, on the tops of our hands, around our fingernails and our our palms, really to protect ourselves and other people. So that means you really want to wash, you know, the To keep it simple, they say, sing slowly, happy birthday, twice. And that would be what you'd call the minimum. Now, I'm not asking you to scrub that you're going into surgery like I did. You have to go up to your elbows. But, you know, any part that's actually been in contact with the other person or just objects or just frequently during the day because we're touching everything in sight. And, you know, we talk about back in the days when the only thing people worried about was the Novavirus on the cruise ships where people would touch all the... um, you know, the handrails hand and the walls and the, the, the plates and things that other people may have picked up in the buffet line then put down. So we need to realize and be cognizant of all the different surfaces we're touching all day long. And now it, it looks humorous because they always show all the people on television who have all these figures, you know, they're authoritative people and they're different um, you know, career paths in terms of infectious disease control. And they're saying, don't, don't touch your face while they're touching their face, you know, because um, it's just what we do. And so it's really, you have to think twice about it. It's like when they say, don't bite your fingernails so that you put something bitter on it or something. So we have to really start thinking about washing our hands, touching our face, and and just um, how we're doing everything in life. We're rethinking basically how we live. Do you think it could actually reduce the numbers? Well, I think the big goal now is mitigation more than containment. That whole idea probably is long gone. So the idea is not to overwhelm the healthcare system because there's not enough facilities, not enough healthcare experts to deal with the numbers of people that are going to need critical care. And so maybe we're just spreading it out over a longer period of time, but maybe we're also going to lower the numbers that are actually infected because we're not giving the virus as much opportunity to find hosts to replicate in. And it's um, it's a really interesting virus the way it replicates, but it does need a host. So if we can limit the, the hosts and the hosts can win the war, because it's really a battle, you know, you against them. So if we can win the war and then we don't give them so many hosts, it should die down just like other kinds of epidemics that have happened in the past. And maybe fewer people will be affected and certainly fewer people will die. My own opinion is that we should do, and this is really painful, it's hard to even think about it, but we should do what Italy is basically doing now, which is that everyone stays in their house for a period of time, maybe it'll be a month, and only critical 
people who have to work, you know, will be working, that you stay really home, that you get food and you just put it in your house and you keep distancing yourself from people when you do go out and only markets and pharmacies are open and only critical needs are met in the society to really stop this replication of this virus because it's very infectious. The idea that And I've heard this on television that, well, if you're young and you're healthy, well, then you can kind of go out. But if you're old, you should, you know, hide out and and protect yourself. But if we really want to shut this down, we have to just really bite the bullet and just really separate ourselves from other people and just not give this virus any host to grow in. That kind of social isolation can bring difficulties in itself, can't it? Existing in our homes, rarely going out, whether it's just to go to a pharmacy or maybe to a supermarket to buy some food. But we're not doing the other good stuff that we would normally do to stay healthy. We're not exercising, for example. We're not, we're not getting around. And perhaps we're going to be eating a, from a smaller selection of foods because they, that's what we happen to have in the refrigerator at the time. I know it is really a hard choice. What I am recommending is that you know people kind of cocoon together with others if possible so that you know if you have even a friend and you agree together that you're only going to go out you know for critical needs at very slowest times and distance that maybe you and one other person can get together you know something like that so it's like limited social connection because we are social creatures absolutely we know that for the elderly one of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality is loneliness so we don't want people to get lonely on the other hand we really want to nip this in the bud so you know like doing what we're doing now is like looking at you so far away you know miles away it's what we have to do i'm setting up for my elderly mother-in-law so that she can do FaceTiming with her grandkids and such so that it's not the same. There's no question. But if you think of it as maybe one month and that you can go out a little bit when it's quiet, you can still go if you have a backyard or walk by yourself because it's not like it's flying through the air every which way. You know, there is a some amount of outdoor activity you can do if there's nobody else around. And it's, but it's going to be a very hard time. But We have our choices to make. If we spread it out, if we think about, if we can learn from other countries like Italy, they try to do it in pieces. Like we'll do a little something, then we'll do a little more, then we'll do a little more. And then it's like, no, we have to shut everything down. So my feeling is, why don't we just learn and just shut everything down? I mean, that's what they ultimately did in China. I mean, why are we doing in in pieces? Have, you know, can't we learn? And interesting, you should mention the, the problem of loneliness, which uh, we've talked about many times on, on this podcast during what you could call normal times. But that kind of isolation can lead to additional stress and additional worry, which in itself is a, a threat to your general well-being. So uh, what should people that maybe obviously through no fault of their own find themselves alone during these times, what can they do to alleviate that stress? Well, they should listen to music that they enjoy and write letters. They should read books that they've been wanting to read for a very long time. And I really think that as long as we have the internet functioning and we can do these different forms, whether it's Zoom or Skype or FaceTime or something, that we really have to stay connected. We have to... People can stay connected 
through the electronic means. We have to do that. We, I mean, I can't say the idea that we put people into basically solitary confinement is not acceptable, of course. That's why I said to one of my elderly relatives, I said, can you find a friend or two and then you just like become roommates for the next month. So you're together. So you're not by yourself. And then it, it changes the whole game. If you have one person, all you need is one best buddy to get through something like this. So, And if you just can't have somebody else with you, then do it through these remote communication type systems. But we have to do that. I mentioned at the start that you and I have talked in the past, and of course many others on this podcast as well, that the goal is increasing our health span. It's uh, interventions that we can apply to our lives to pursue a longer, healthier life. And at times like this, those thoughts kind of dissipate a little bit because it is about getting through the next few weeks. But there will be things that people are doing. And I'm thinking in particular about fasting or periodic fasting, intermittent fasting, whatever kind of regime that you do, because there is a lot of good science that suggests it could help increase your health span. Is now a good time or a bad time to be doing that? What should people, do you think, consider? Well, it's a great question. And I think right now it's not the time to do caloric restriction or to do any sort of fasting. I think we should be repleting our bodies with as many nutrients and and varied types of polyphenols. And it's really a problem because you just said, well, what if you're locked in your house? Where are you going to get all this food? So I think that's why they're keeping, like in Italy, the markets are not closed. I mean, people who produce food have to still do that. People need to have food. So you do have to go out and get food. You can buy frozen vegetables and such. But I think we need to be eating across the colors of the rainbow. We need to eat fruit and vegetables because the antioxidants and the polyphenols are what's necessary to run the machinery of our body. The immune system has to stay as vibrant as possible. And unfortunately, for a brief period of time when you do fasting, the immune system is actually downregulated. You actually have a reduced number of the immune cells, the white blood cells, these first responders that are there to attack the invader, actually decrease in numbers, but just for a short period of time. But the problem is we can't time anything right now. So if that's the time when you actually get infected, that could allow potentially, because like nobody's done data collection, nobody's done studies on this particular virus with this. But we do know that it, it does actually increase some de- to some degree risk of infection. That's why we would never recommend any form of fasting to someone who is actually sick or just recovering from an infectious illness, underwent a, a surgery or is debilitated, someone who had a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, people who are really elderly, who have already some form of immunocompromised situation, we wouldn't tell them to just do this sort of a thing. So we have to be really cautious. So I'm all for maintaining longevity. But like I say to my patients who are pregnant, this is not the time for you to do fasting. Or if they're trying to get if they're trying to get pregnant now is not the time. So we should put that on the back burner for now and not worry about losing weight, just worry about staying healthy by eating lots of food, recognizing that the food and the nutrients, the minerals, the the vitamins are what is needed for our immune system to be optimally healthy. And when you think about who it is that is always listed as the highest risk, they're the people who have immune systems that are not optimal. Aging is associated with a decreased 
um, functionality of the immune system. And of course, people on chemotherapy and immune suppressive drugs, likewise. You mentioned women and possibility of getting pregnant during this time. Are men and women equally vulnerable to this? And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Well, it seems not. It seems that men are actually more vulnerable. And that's been kind of the the trend forever in terms of infectious illness and gender differences. So females are imbued with a much more vigorous, aggressive, robust immune system. And it starts actually during the embryonic stages when women have two X chromosomes for a, a, a while, maybe even a few weeks, both X chromosomes are still working in that woman who's now an embryo. And that those extra X chromosomes on that extra X, um, all those X chromosomes are actually largely involved with immune function. And then when the X chromosome gets deactivated, about 15% of those chromosomes stay active and they are almost all involved in immune function. So women actually make more white blood cells. They make more antibodies. They have more T cells, more B cells. They have a more robust immune system. And it's really so that women will survive. I mean, nature just did what it had to do. It said there will be epidemics, there will be infectious diseases. And if that happens, and there's this terrible plague that hits, it wants more women to survive than men. So if 10 women survive versus and only one male, that allows the population to come back. But if you have only one woman and 10 men, then you're in big trouble. It's going to take a really long time and probably a few wars before you get any babies um, to replace the number of people that have been killed off by by the plague or the infection. So also men have testosterone. So testosterone is actually an immunosuppressive. It actually lowers the function of the immune system. And that's also designed because it's about energy. There's a limited energy that any human being has in their body in terms of how much they can eat and where they're going to use that energy. And men are designed to be bigger and stronger, more muscle, more bone. And so a lot of their energy goes into that. And they have to keep making all those sperm too. That takes a lot of energy. So in women, they're smaller and they're not doing all of that. They're not, they're, they already have their eggs, so they don't have to keep making sperm or anything like it. So they put a lot of their energy in their body into maintaining that robust immune system system. And it stays for life, but estrogen is not for life. And estrogen like, is the opposite of testosterone in that testosterone is a suppressant, but estrogen is really an invigorator of the immune system. It modulates it. And when women have any kind of infection, when they're in the premenopausal years, they have a significantly um, a great advantage over the males. But after menopause, it still is females over males, but not as much because estrogen is lost. So it's really important to know that when they talk about um, a lot of the younger people who are ending up on the um, ventilators, they seem to be males. So maintaining a healthy immune system, it really is, is central to this. And one issue that comes to mind is 
we've talked about stress, but sleep as well and the importance of that during a, a critical time when your health could be challenged. Absolutely. We know that if you don't get enough sleep, your body is going to be in a stress situation. Stress has a specific response in the body. It's going to elevate cortisol. And cortisol can be life-saving, but not when you're in a chronic situation like this. You don't want to suppress your immune system and have dysbiotic gut. So when you have high stress and you don't get enough sleep, you alter your gut microbiome. You're more likely to have what we call impaired gut barrier, and that's going to create more systemic inflammation. And people who have more systemic inflammation are by far more vulnerable. That's what is the case with people, for example, who have diabetes and obesity. It's that chronic low-grade inflammation that suppresses the immune system and puts them in that higher vulnerability status. So sleep is also when the body heals itself and regenerates. You have massive blood flow to the brain while you're sleeping, and you produce that incredible potent antioxidant melatonin, which is so important for keeping that oxidative stress under control in our body. So sleep is not optional. It's imperative at this time. And when I say sleep, like everything, it's all circadian, right? So you don't want to sleep at two o'clock in the afternoon. You want to go to bed at 10 o'clock at night because we're programmed genetically to, when everything is right, to peak our melatonin around 2 a.m. But that won't happen if you go to bed at 1 a.m. As we Look at the bigger picture here. As we, as we will, as we emerge from this, what lessons as a society do you think we will learn from it? Perhaps about regarding the way that we communicate with each other, the way that we feed ourselves, the way that we exercise, the way that we maintain proper cleanliness. Will there be longer term lessons that could benefit us all? Well, I really hope some of the big lessons are the things that put us into a vulnerable situation to make us more at risk. For example, air pollution. So if you live in an area with really severe air pollution, your lungs are already damaged, you're going to be at a much higher risk. Like, for example, smokers. We know that the people who are smokers and get infected have a much higher mortality. Well, you can get plenty of smoke just by breathing the air, you know, the comparable toxins. The other thing is in terms of climate change. Now, there's some really renowned scientists that are saying that part of this may be related to changes in vectors and changes in climate. And and we know that that came up with the Zika virus, right? And and Lyme disease, because climate change is changing how the earth is and all the different um, greenhouse gases and so on. So I hope that this will be a wake-up call about protecting the environment and recognizing that the environment does play a role in all of this. And then when they looked at the the um, in China, where they had the wild animals, the way they were stored, and the, what the way they were taking care of them, they were very um, unsanitary in those conditions. I mean, what they were doing was probably not appropriate, but the viruses may not have spread so much if they kept things under a sanitary condition. Look at the way we have agriculture in this country, the confined feedlot animals, the way they keep them under such close conditions. That can foster infections. And we we learned with mad cow disease, didn't we, that animals can be vectors to give humans all kinds of infections and viruses, slow viruses that can basically eat away your brain. So I think we need to look at how we farm, you know, animals, the fact that we have food that is not, you know, we have to actually look for labels like organic. Why isn't all food organic? 
So these are the things that keep our bodies healthy and strong so that we don't have pandemics because, you know, if we don't, if we didn't put this virus into the system in the first place, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But maybe if people had more robust immune systems, if we had hormones for our lives as much as possible, if we were eating the right foods that we weren't having air pollution or weird things in, you know, in our food, then hopefully that. And then also, of course, recognizing that we need to react. We need to have leadership at the top. (laughs) You know, we need to have a plan. It it sometimes feels like a free-for-all. You know, the very fact that we have to say, what does social distancing even mean? And that there's multiple definitions depending on who you're asking. So we need to have clear leadership. We need to have you know, public health, we need to have pandemic control, like who's in charge, we need to have experts so that the next time this comes around, we'll actually have a plan, we'll have tests. I have like you mentioned, people are calling me up all the time, and they're labeling them the worried well, as if they're like, not good people because they're just wanting to steal the test from the real sick people. But everyone should be tested. How else are we going to know who's at risk involving the you know close proximity to somebody else. So we need to be prepared. Preparedness has certainly been sort of lacking in this whole um, event, this whole you know pandemic in the United States and to some degree in the world. I think this also is another thing is that this is one world. You know, we are linked to everyone else. I don't care where the borders are, as they say. The viruses don't care about borders. And we are one world. If anything, this should bring us together, that all humanity lives and dies together on this planet. We need to care for ourselves. We need to care for our planets. And, you know, the fact that there's peop- there are people who maybe will be living in isolation, we need to help them to get them through this. I think that's a, that's a great point. And uh, something else that interests me are the, the social implications of, of how we're living these days and probably for the next few weeks. The fact that uh, so much travel has been cancelled, conferences, concerts, sports events, you name it, everything is being cancelled and we're just, we're scaling everything down. It's almost like taking a big big (laughs) breath to some extent that we are just, it's enforced calming, but we're living this almost more zen-like lives. And I don't want to sort of downplay the seriousness and, and why we're doing that actually almost trying to see a positive in in what we're doing right now. But there is something that does kind of nurture the soul a little bit by just scaling everything down and and being calm and just looking after ourselves. Yeah, I really love that you brought that up. We actually got out some of our board games. (laughs) It's like bringing back the old times, like when people actually talk to each other, they're not just watching television or running around. You know, families used to have dinners together. They used to be together. Now they're all scattered because they have all these activities. Kids are so overscheduled these days. So maybe this is, you know, sort of like bringing back the families, bringing homes together. And I love the idea that there can always be good that comes out of this, like the idea that we're one people, the whole earth, that families should be nesting together and talking to each other and caring for each other. People like, you know, Aunt Millie really needs me now. And so people are reaching out to others. So I think that that we can always find that silver lining. And that's really it, that it brings us together. It gets back to that even in social isolation, we can still, and social distancing, we can still actually 
become warmer and more humane to each other and, and build relationships, even in this time. Well, I think it's good to end this with some positive thoughts. And, and also just to say that anyone listening, we've been talking, sharing these ideas about the way forward. Of course, anyone, and I'm sure you'll support this as well, anyone feeling unwell or as if they need medical help, they should speak to their doctor or their professional healthcare advisors. Absolutely. It's really essential. All the healthcare systems now have in place specific mechanisms to help people to get tested. They don't have enough tests, but for people who are really ill, there are tests for them. But you can't just walk into a doctor's office or into a hospital. They, everyone is to be forewarned so that you can have protective gear and everything is done properly. So definitely talk to your doctor. Your doctor should know and will know exactly what the procedure is to help you to get the care you need. Well, Dr. Feliska, this has been very interesting and hopefully very useful. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure and good luck to everyone. We can do this. And what I will do is, because we've done it for previous episodes with you, I'll, I'll put some of your social media connections, website, that kind of thing, into the show notes for this episode. And you'll find those at LlamaPodcast.com. That's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. Llama being the acronym that we use for Live Long and Master Aging. Take care, everyone. Be as healthy as you can. And thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.